You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host. And with me today is Dr. William Pierce, Chairman of the Department of Vascular Surgery at Northwestern University in Chicago. And we are discussing peripheral vascular disease. Dr. Pierce, after we've got the suspicion of uh, peripheral vascular disease based on our clinical evaluation and possibly the ankle brachial index, how else do we evaluate these patients? Well, probably the next step is to obtain lower extremity arterial blood flow studies. And that technique uses uh, blood pressure cuffs that are placed in the thigh and two in the calf. And from those, we obtain what's called segmental limb pressures. And those are pressures at the different levels that the cuff are placed. We compare the drop in pressure between any two segments. And if there's a drop in pressure of more than 30 millimeters of mercury, that's considered significant and that there's a blockage between those two cuffs. So, for example, if you have a blood pressure cuff on the thigh and one on the calf and there's a drop of pressure of 30 between those two segments, we know the blockage is localized to that area. So the the non-invasive blood flow study uh, helps us localize the location of the most significant blockage And it also gives us an indication as to the severity. And the ankle brachial index is a spectrum, and the farther down the spectrum or the lower the ankle brachial index, the worse the situation is. And that uh, evaluation with the Doppler and with the blood pressure cuffs, that is done at rest typically? That's done at rest typically, and it's uh, very reproducible, and it's well-tolerated by the patients. And is there a lot of inter-operator variance in the results, or I guess you said it is very reproducible? If you were to repeat the ankle brachial index uh, two or three times, there's a variance of 0.15. So if a patient presents with an ankle brachial index of 0.5, the next time you see him and it's 0.6, it's really within the air of the test. So there has to be a difference of 0.15 to say that there's a significant difference between two separate observations. And is it important uh, in terms of the technologists who are doing the test? For instance, I think of uh, echocardiography as being very dependent on having a good tech to take the pictures. Is that also true for these studies? Well, it's always good to have an experienced technician, but of all the different things that are done in the blood flow lab, this is probably less technician dependent. After we do the segmental limb pressures, we also get Doppler waveforms. That's a little more technician dependent. The Doppler probe is put over the artery, and depending on the angle of that probe, you may get different waveforms. So it's a, this part of the lower extremity blood flow is much more technician-dependent, but the segmental limb pressures is uh, pretty straightforward. And are these ever done with uh, exercise? Occasionally we do them uh, if the, there's an indication such as neurogenic claudication, or it's difficult to separate out uh, what comorbidities are stopping the patient from walking. At what point would you proceed on with MRA or CTA or, or even angiography? Well, those are the other three imaging modalities. And remember, CTA and angios and MRAs are all anatomic studies. They're not physiologic studies. So they give you a picture, but they don't tell you what the hemodynamic consequences of that lesion. So it's just a picture of the anatomy. And we obtain those generally when we're planning to do an intervention. I think you can answer most of the physiologic questions. Is the blockage in the artery producing a hemodynamic abnormality with the ultrasound machine, the duplex scanner? 
and I obtain uh, these other imaging modalities when I'm anticipating an intervention. What are the relative uh, pros and cons of those three modalities? The angiography and the CT angiography all are subject to contrast risk as well as radiation risks. And the MRA has neither the contrast or radiation risk that the two prior do. The gadolinium has on rare occasions in our practice uh, uh, in patients with renal failure have produced some elevation in creatinine. So I'm a little cautious, although it rarely occurs uh, with the gadolinium used in the MRA. The angiogram has largely been replaced by the two less invasive studies, the CTA or the MRA. The angiogram required the catheterization of an artery and the potential arterial complications associated with that and the uh, discomfort. So it's uh, largely been replaced, and the only time that arteriography is performed uh, today in our practice is when we're planning to do an intervention. And the MRA and the CTA are non-invasive, and they help plan the next intervention. So those two studies are great because they give you a roadmap and give you uh, good information to share with your patient. So in this day and age, you don't necessarily have to have a traditional angiogram prior to having an angioplasty or uh, even a surgical procedure. That's correct. We can rely on the two non-invasive tests. They give us sufficient information. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. William Pierce, chairman of the Department of Vascular Surgery at Northwestern University in Chicago, and we are discussing diagnosis of peripheral vascular disease. Dr. Pierce, if you do find both physiologic and anatomic evidence of vascular disease and you're thinking about an intervention, what type of pre-intervention workup do you typically recommend to uh, evaluate for other atherosclerotic disease in the other beds? That remains uh, somewhat controversial, and I often rely on my uh, medical colleagues for help as well. Uh, Whether to look for asymptomatic carotid artery disease is, and screen for asymptomatic disease is probably uh, not supported by the literature. We screen for carotid artery disease in people who have had prior radiation and, of course, prior symptoms, but uh, finding asymptomatic carotid artery disease in treatment particularly of those of the 50-60% range, is is very controversial. And it's uncommon that you'll find high-grade lesions without some some symptoms or at least breweries on physical examination. So routine screening of carotid arteries uh, remains controversial. Uh, Screening for abdominal aortic aneurysms is supported by medical literature, uh, particularly in white Caucasian males. That's the highest incidence. And so if a patient presents with PAD and a history of smoking, and particularly a family history, and they're over the age of 65, you should screen for, for an abdominal aortic aneurysm. As far as for the coronary disease, I again rely on your support as to who would be most appropriate to screen. If they're undergoing major vascular surgery, they often have to have some stress testing of the heart prior to that procedure because of the coexistence of the disease processes. To my understanding, if uh, such a stress test is is performed and indicates some disease, you would not do a procedure there simply for the other surgery. You would use the same criteria you would for someone who was not undergoing surgery. 
And do you use uh, a lot of perioperative beta blockade? It was first shown uh, that a perioperative beta blockade was important with abdominal aortic aneurysms and it reduced reduce the mortality. We have extended that to all of our vascular patients, not only uh, the aneurysm patients and intra-abdominal procedures, but those undergoing carotid surgery as well as uh, lower extremity surgery. And there's no level one data for that, but these patients have the same disease process in the heart, and we've had great success with that. And it's also rare to find a patient today that's not already on beta blockers uh, prior to us seeing them. So if I can summarize the order of testing, you would certainly do your clinical evaluation, and the ankle brachial index should follow, and then that diagnosis can be pinpointed physiologically by the Blood segmental blood pressure readings and uh, ultrasonography, and then it, at that point, treat medically unless a procedure is being uh, contemplated? That's correct. I, I think there is abundant evidence that suggests exercise for the most, is the most effective treatment, uh, not only for their coronary disease, but also for their peripheral vascular disease. They learn how to walk better, interestingly, by, by exercise programs, and uh, there's several randomized studies that show a a definite benefit in walking distance just with training. Does the exercise program need to be something that is in a a formal supervised setting? It generally is best in a supervised setting, that's correct. Uh, Just telling the patient to go walk a certain distance is usually not as effective as having them in a supervised program. Unfortunately, as we spoke earlier, I don't believe that there is funding for vascular rehab as there is with coronary rehab. You would think that if it is for coronary, that there should be also for the same process in the the peripheral vasculature. One would think. And when my uh, patients who I'm treating medically say, you know, it, it hurts, doc, when I walk half a block, should I tell them, you know, continue to walk until pain, walk through pain? What advice should I give to my patients? I recommend that they walk to pain and then stop and try to reproduce it until they can walk slightly further. There's ongoing research at the present time to see whether or not walking through the pain is actually harmful. There is some evidence to suggest that that is more damaging to the muscle in the lower extremity than to have these uh, shorter walking distances and then regenerate the oxygen uh, in the calf and then continue on. So there's ongoing uh, work uh, to look at that uh, phenomenon to, to see if uh, too much exercise uh, might, in fact, be bad. And do most uh, major university hospitals have a vascular rehab that we can refer our patients to? I would doubt that they do. I would look for the vascular surgeon or vascular medicine specialist, and sometimes they're cardiologists, sometimes they're lipidologists, uh, sometimes their primary care, who has a primary interest in uh, this problem, and uh, they'll be able to, to help you out. And give a more formal uh, program to our, our patients to help them deal with the, uh, their, their symptoms and, and exercise. That's correct. And occasionally, uh, you can use a drug such as celestazole, and that may be of some benefit, but there's certain side effects. So it, I talked to the patients about uh, the potential addition of celestazole. They may or may not want to take a medicine that may or may not have benefit for them. And if they haven't had benefit after six weeks or eight weeks, then I would stop the drug. Trentol, do we see that used at all for symptomatic relief? 
It generally uh, has not been used to a great extent in the last several years. Both of those drugs were approved for patients with claudication. And what's interesting is that uh, both have been shown to improve walking distance on a treadmill, but in real life, patients uh, usually have greater demands on their legs than what's demonstrated on the treadmill. So if a patient walks 50 more feet on a treadmill, that might be significant from a research point of view. Usually is of little benefit to the patient who's walking several blocks to the store. The addition of a few feet may may make no difference. And people walk at different rates of speed as well, and sometimes there's a rapid walking pace, which is not studied in some of the, the uh, drug testing. I want to thank Dr. William Pierce, who's been our guest, as we've been discussing peripheral vascular disease. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.